Hello and welcome to the podcast of the Faith and Justice Network, where we are seeking faith and learning justice. My name is Peter Choi, and in this episode, I was joined by Julie Rogers, who, among many other amazing details about her life, is the author of Out Love, a queer Christian survival story. It's a powerful book that, in many ways, represents the work that we are trying to do here at the Faith and Justice Network. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Hey, it's good to see you, Julie. How are you? Hi, Peter. It's so great to to be here with you today. Yeah, thanks, Julie. Now, you're a teaching fellow in the Faith and Justice Network, but I think this is our first time having you on the podcast. So welcome. It is my first time, and it's exciting to be here. Thank you. Yeah, well, it's a treat to be in conversation with you. Uh, And as you know, every month in the Faith and Justice program, we focus on a theme or a topic related to matters of faith and justice. And this month, our our focus is on um, money, power, and justice. And our key text is D.L. Mayfield's wonderful book, The Myth of the American Dream, Reflections on Affluence, Autonomy, Safety, and Power. I thought we would begin by asking you, as someone who has done some deep reflection and writing on how it is that abusive systems of power work, um, why you think it's so important in the work of justice that we interrogate how power operates and how to go about um, just doing that work? Oh, yes. Um, you know, so I, I guess I'll start with a little bit of background in my journey to understanding the importance of talking about it. Um, When I was younger, I came from an evangelical background. And even when I got my start in ministry, it was very much a a sort of one-to-one mentor type mindset. Um, And it was very changing hearts and minds and focused on the individuals, which evangelicalism, you know, really really focuses on and in many ways that's great because it it can be helpful in terms of just like the spiritual life and we see you know a lot of talk about individual salvation and individual contributions and uh for the most part we we think about things at that level and over time i started to see i think it was really it really crystallized for me when i was working in the chaplain's office at wheaton college And I was working with marginalized students, primarily doing spiritual care um, and queer students in particular. And I started to see that it was, while it was really meaningful to be doing that work and it was really important uh, to be holding space for students in a one-on-one capacity and with small groups and things like that, there wasn't much that I or any of us could really do to alleviate their suffering because their suffering was coming from the larger system and their suffering was coming from their experiences with roommates, with their parents, with classmates, with teachings, with things said in chapels, with moments of violence on campus. And those experiences were were largely shaped by the the power structures at Wheaton, who I started realizing when I was in rooms with them, had the ability and had the the opportunity to make changes that would alleviate that suffering and could really change the overall culture on campus. 
but they continually chose not to because of um, money from uh, alumni and the in prospective students' parents and admissions and advancement. And they very soberly uh, made that calculation and made that decision based on essentially money and power. And so while I continue to feel uh, personally like equipped and wired to do that work of sitting with people and their suffering in a in a small group one-on-one capacity, I also feel like that that work can only go so far if we don't if we don't begin to talk about and seek to shift uh, people that are in positions of power making the bigger decisions that affect the overall context that creates that suffering in the first place. Wow, thank you so much, Julie, for reminding us of the larger context, you know, that, that backdrop against which we have these conversations and try to do this work. And as you were talking about context, it, um, I was reminded that, well, first of all, our co-host D.L. Mayfield is not with us today. And so, of course, I've already messed up because if she were here, one of the things that she would have encouraged us to do is to um, and to begin the conversation just by uh, connecting with each other mm-hmm. and um, asking asking you um, to share a little bit more about sort of maybe who you are and how you're entering into this time. So I'm really sorry I forgot to do that, Julie. Um, but if you wouldn't mind just backtracking a little bit and sharing with us um, about yourself and and how you're doing today. Absolutely. Um, so I am a I'm a writer. I do some speaking and sort of an, an activist or organizer who has spent most of my adult life working uh, to expand sort of like a sense of dignity for LGBTQ people, primarily in uh, Christian spaces. And I grew up uh, sort of like at the center or a, I grew up as a part of a community that were at the center of the battle between the religious right and um, the battle for LGBTQ rights. And so um, I, when I was 16, my mom took me to a conversion therapy program that was in practice in a Christian ministry setting. And then Oh, you know, I spent almost 10 years in that setting uh, because it's a very insular community where you can be unaware of basic facts about like science and you, you don't know what you don't know, right? And so I stayed for a very long time hoping to uh, become someone that could, could make my family proud and make my conservative Christian community accept me and uh, to try to live a straight looking life. and. Uh, like most people, eventually left that with quite a bit of trauma and spent some time uh, trying to live a sort of single and celibate life as an openly gay person. And that was when I was uh, on staff at Wheaton College in the chaplain's office and uh, did some writing and speaking about that. And then eventually uh, came to a place of seeing that really these these systems, it's that teaching uh, that creates a sense of shame and it's that teaching that's continuing to cause harm and violence toward the queer community. And so I uh, came to a place of fully affirming LGBTQ people and, and that extends to myself and my own uh, love and relationships and, and, and body. And so I've been on a journey around all of that and sort of lived my life publicly in many ways. Uh, not so much, I guess mainly to say like 
this is this is what it's like. Like this is a window into a life that uh, millions of people are living, and an invitation for people to come along on this journey of learning alongside me. And that's an ongoing journey, and uh, I continue to evolve. And um, I also um, am grateful to to have been able to see a lot of people move over the on these mm -hmm. issues over the last uh, you know 15 years I've been a part of it and so a lot of most of my insights I would say come from experience though I definitely spend a lot of time uh, reading and studying and uh, listening to other people's lives as well that's super helpful and inspiring Julie thanks so much and um, how are you entering into this time I so I just had a great uh, zoom chat with the queer cohort and uh, with the Faith and Justice Network. It was really beautiful and also just a reminder of um, how when we do sort of come to that place of accepting ourselves um, and we do accept the rejection that often comes with that when we're coming from communities that, that don't accept us, that it, it's the beginning. Of, it feels like the end. It feels like a big celebration. You know, maybe somebody will make a post about it and uh, maybe we'll go out in Pride Month and and celebrate and also it's it's the beginning in many ways of beginning to build a sense of a strong sense of self and beginning to build a life and um, several of us talked about how we don't quite know what we're gonna do for jobs because we spent mm. uh, so many of our years working in ministry settings uh, trying to be the good kids the good gays the good Christians and then we were disqualified from those positions and now you know, in our late 20s or early 30s, we're kind of figuring out, like, what is it? I still have these same gifts and passions, and it's also not clear where we fit into the workforce. And so talking through some of those things and uh, people feeling like they're, they're longing for, you know, spiritual communities like the experience of the Faith and Justice Network in, in their real life and not being clear on where to go just because they're so tired and burned out on church. And so... Um, so yeah, just, you know, I, I've just, that I, I relate to all of that. Uh, that's very much my story too. And I'm feeling like a sense of, I feel a real sense of hope and possibility much of the time mm. and gratitude at the ways that um, my life has expanded and I've grown and I've, um, and then also that sense of, of the weight of it all too. And um, a sense of kind of being late to the the sort of typical life experiences that so many other people go through in their teens and 20s and um, a little unequipped to try to figure all that out now, often with less resources than people have when they have families that support them and, and the communities that raise them sort of with them in that. So that's a, it's a com complicated answer to your question, but I bring all that into this conversation. Thank you for sharing all of that, Julie. Thank you for just your openness. And I mean, I think the, the kinds of things you're talking about, the kinds of struggles that people have um, because they grew up with a certain kind of worldview, aspiring towards these values and then finding themselves um, detached from those values now and, and really trying to, to live by a different set of values that, that complicates life because... Mm -hmm. um, you know um the basic necessities of life right like 
um, just having money, having a job, having some sense of uh, value in the work that you do, all of those things get upended. And so, um, yeah, I think those are really pressing uh, questions and, and ways that some of these issues that we're talking about this month get lived out and worked out. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and thank you too for um, describing the ways that you have spoken truth to power. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's a big theme in what you just shared with us today. And so um, thank you for that. Thank you for the work that you've done in your life in, in those mm-hmm. ways. Yeah, thank you. You're so great, Peter. Uh, <laughs> well, one of, the, one of the readings that we're working on uh, this month is um, The Myth of the American Dream by mm. D.L. Mayfield. And it's actually a text that speaks to a lot of the things that we've already been uh, begun to talk about. And I wanted to read an excerpt. I was thinking about this quote because Mihi Kim Kord, uh, who is also one of our teaching fellows, posted this excerpt on our um, conversation board. And it's, I think it's such a great um, summary of some of the main ideas or um, the arguments Danielle is making in the book. And so just, let me just read this for us, and then um, let's talk about it some. She writes, what is the opposite of poor? of captivity, blindness, oppression. As I meditated on this question, the answers surprised me. The answers, it turned out, were the defining values of my life, the ones I was perpetually striving for, all in the name of a good life. Affluence, autonomy, safety, and power. Four concrete values that bled into each other and seeped into my bones, affecting the decisions I made every day, from the tiniest to the monumental. I feel drawn to pursue these values with little to no self-interrogation. Of course I want a good house and a good neighborhood, a stable job, the ability to provide for myself and my family, the best education possible for our kids, a life of ease and comfort, the ability to keep death and pain at bay, the opportunity to lead and to be at the top of the hierarchy, to be seen as an expert and accomplished to take what I am owed by my virtue and hard work. Wow, so there's a lot there, right? A lot Mm -hmm. of um, just, I think such a, this is not everyone's experience. I think it's important to name that. Uh, But Mm -hmm. for so many people growing up in in America, these are the values and these are the aspirations that shape, uh, shape our lives. And it strikes me that so much of what you have been wrestling with and what you have just been talking about with us today is um, an exercise in interrogation. So how do these words resonate for you? And um, and yeah, just sort of, can you talk about a little bit about how maybe you find yourself um, on this path of questioning these values that um, have been so deeply embedded or inscribed? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I have been, growing up, white and middle class in the United States. And I think that I think that those values are held out as uh, the goal to be striving for, for the most part, no matter who you are. And that's the, the idea of the American dream is that anybody can access it. And I think we've all done the work of realizing that's not true, that only some people can access it. But what we haven't done is question the premise of it in the first place, like DL is calling us to do. For the most part, we don't hear many people say, wait, not only is it untrue that anybody can access this, but is this right? Is this what we 
is this actually what we want to be striving toward as as humans, as communities? As, and um, I think having been at different points on that journey of there have been times when I have had more access to money and power and less, depending on a range of circumstances in my life. Um, I'm at a place right now where I have less access in some ways um, and more access and still quite a bit of access in terms of uh, leadership positions, like in terms of how cultural influence works. And so one thing that I've been paying attention to is how um, how power works in cultural conversations and spaces and like you see with influencers and I don't consider myself an influencer, but I am on a micro level, have have some influence culturally and on social media and as a writer. And it's it's really been striking me lately more than ever as I look at uh, people who are a little further along than me, um, who, who have a little bit more, who have bigger platforms and uh, more sort of structure structures that sort of support them in the work that they're doing that many people strive to do right now on social media and as thought leaders. Um, how even even people I love, how much of what they share and what they say, they, they crank out new books every year or every year and a half and they're posting regularly and they're doing the, the Instagram lives and all the things. And it's just really been striking me how what they're saying is so disconnected from the actual lived realities of the human beings in my life. Mm-hmm. When I think about people that I am just sit with and listen with, or people working in the restaurants with me, or people commuting alongside of me, I, it just there's just this enormous gap between where conversations are among people with some degree of, of affluence and power and what the actual needs of human beings are in our day-to-day lives. And it strikes me that the conversation, this isn't just about like people in DC with political power or people on Wall Street with financial power or people in our churches with power, you know, from religious perspectives, but it's also cultural power as people with platforms and thought leadership. Um, is that it, it? Is this you know? I guess like I, I guess this is what I'm interrogating right now, um, and it's a place where I have more access to power than those others. And I think it's really worth asking when we look at human, the actual human beings in in our communities. Um, is the way that power is working? Where is where is the power? What direction is it moving? Is this actually serving the tangible needs of people or is this just inflating egos and making some people more comfortable and giving some people more of a sense of importance? And I think unfortunately what we see, and I don't want to make, I'm not making broad judgments. I think each individual person that's in power, you know, is, is working things out with fear and trembling with themselves and that's their responsibility. But broadly speaking, I don't think we have many healthy examples of what it looks like for people in, with power to be uh, using that very well in the United States. And so I'm just asking questions about what that means, what that means for me, what that means for my community, and how to go about uh, building a life that is 
is not seeking that and is not shaped by the allure of that. I mean, this is one of the things I really appreciate about you, Julie, is that um, you're always trying to peer underneath the surface of uh, whatever it is that we're talking about and, and trying to get at the heart of, um, of the thing at hand because um, oftentimes, especially when it comes to money and power, there's always going to be uh, more than meets the eye, right? Because there is this mm-hmm. adaptive ability that power structures have. And so, and this is why people who have power have gotten to the places where they are because they've been able to, to adapt and to, um, and to evolve. And, and in some ways that's a good thing, right? It's a, it's a pathway to flourishing. Uh, but in other ways it can, it can lead to power hoarding. Um, one of the other texts that we were reading this month is by, it's, it's a piece by Devin Singh, and it's, um, it's entitled Debt Cancellation, a Sovereign Crisis Management. And it's a pretty sophisticated argument on the one hand, but on the other hand, I think it can be boiled down to what he's basically saying there is that this idea of debt cancellation, which can oftentimes come across as virtuous and helpful and even benevolent, um, what it is at its heart is... It's, a, it's actually another strategy for holding on to power. And so whether it's government mm-hmm. or even people in your life who hold power over you because you are in some way indebted to them, the, the very act of forgiving you of their debt is actually a way of um, accruing to themselves even more power and influence. And I got to tell you, as I was reading this piece, it just kind of did a number on me because I realized as I was hearing him describe a process, even, you know, the biblical concept of jubilee, which oftentimes we think in our day, wouldn't it be great to be able to organize something like a jubilee? And what Devin is doing here is he's saying, actually, these power structures are so deeply embedded and they're so good at disguising themselves mm. that we oftentimes uh, miss uh, these very adaptive and creative ways in which um, power continues to um, hold on to, um, to power. And so I, I, I hear a lot of resonance between what I read there and to uh, what you're saying today about trying to ask really good questions and to, and to mm. see more deeply. That's really interesting. I, so I'll, I'll be honest, I have not read uh, mm-hmm. Devin Singh's article. I will now. Um, I've read DL's book, and it's it was actually one of my favorite reads of the last year. But I, I wonder, um, I find that fascinating, and I see how that can be true in many... Um, I see the truth of that overall. I hadn't thought about it in terms of debt forgiveness, but I know, mm-hmm. you know, people who are financially dependent... When you're financially dependent on somebody else, you are subject to them in many ways. Um, but I wonder, like, you know, there's such the conversation around like student loan forgiveness and, um, and things like that, how that plays out. And I'm interested to hear him talk more about this idea because it both makes sense. And also it brings up just so many more questions for me. Yes, Mm -hmm. it does. Right. Because on the one hand, it's like, yeah, so there are so many people out there in the world who would be, who would love to be forgiven of their student debts and could do really good things with that. Um, 
Yeah, so it raises lots of great questions. Um, one of the relevant areas that we might talk about is what you touched on already, is which is uh, people giving away power or exercising power in different ways. It's a beautiful concept in the abstract, but what what might it look like? I mean, this is a question I often get from people. Like, yeah, that's great in theory, uh, but what would it look? What would it really and truly look like to give away power? I think. Uh the first thing I'll say is that we likely don't have as many examples because when it's happening, we're likely not going to know it and see it because it wouldn't be announcing itself for the most part. Um, so I'm thinking of ways that people could do that. Um, it's often going to look like being in, if you're in a, a position of having access to conversations with decision makers, um, challenging them about why the room looks the way it does what practically they who you know who's who who specifically is being passed over that deserves to be in there and advocating for those people to be in the room you know and so we're not going to know about that because then that person would be out here telling everybody and that would sort of uh yeah so uh it's one thing that comes to mind another is like um you know the when I think about writers, um, so for instance, um, John Grisham doesn't. He has a ghostwriter. Mm. Uh, he doesn't actually write his books. Uh, and this is somebody, one of the most successful authors in the United States in the last couple, de- you know, couple decades. And um, I would say the opposite of that, <laughs> because that means somebody else is doing all of the labor and getting none of the credit, and we don't even see like the width on it, like width, you know. Wow. Jenny Hendrix. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just John Grisham. And so what I'm thinking is like, if you're somebody who is in a position where you've had a lot of success, not only writing a book with somebody else of John Grisham and Jenny Jones, but mm-hmm. uh, what about Jenny Jones uh, with John Grisham? You know, and it's starting to use that just slowly putting other people in positions where they're the ones getting the headline. They're the one with the microphone. They're the one getting the credit and um, finding ways to, to slowly, you know, I, I don't think it's like, for instance, I think about uh, Hillsong. This is just a recent example mm-hmm. of like an absolutely terrible use of power an abuse of power on a mass level, over 150,000 people at Hillsong churches around the world on a given Sunday. Um, and there was so much abuse going on, and we've seen this with so many mega churches. Um, the, it's not just that the, the head pastors should have stepped down a long time ago. It's that they actually, let's assume, let's, let's say they were actually good people with integrity. Mm-hmm. Uh, removing themselves from their positions, elevating other people into those positions, and then doing the work of maybe continuing to fundraise because of the power that they do have to support these other people's leadership and vision. I don't think it's just necessarily like going off to a beach house, a lake house somewhere, but staying and doing that same work you feel called to without the spotlight and without the, uh, yeah, the power. I mean, I, we, what I hear you saying is, hey, let's just exercise some creativity. We think outside the box. And, and just because mm-hmm. we've always done it this way doesn't mean that we have to continue doing it that way. And, and 
um, is it possible that we might think of new ways of church leadership? Um, and what might people who have accumulated influence and supporters, yeah, how might they continue in those roles in ways that are more, that are more inclined to sharing or to uh, distributing that more widely, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I love, I love both the, ch- the challenge and the creativity that you're bringing to our reflections here. Another text that we're reading uh, this month is um, the, the classic liberation the- theologian, uh, or the classic text in liberation theology by uh, Gustavo Gutierrez. And one of the things that he says in an, uh, a new introduction to a revised edition of the book is he's reflecting on power, the abuses of power, um, the hardships that especially women have gone through in Latin America. And he, he writes this. He says, one thing that makes it very difficult to grasp its true character uh, is its hiddenness, for it has become something habitual, part of everyday life and cultural tradition. And I think what he's talking about there is both the power and the abuses of power. Mm. And so as we wrap up the conversation, I wonder if you um, could reflect on that ability of those who hold power in abusive ways, how that's oftentimes hidden. Have you seen this at work in the world? I think what strikes me is that, yes, it's definitely work in the world. And I think the most insidious part of it is that it's also hidden from the person holding it. Uh, so much of the time. I think that the way we go about these conversations assumes that people are deliberately making these decisions to be manipulative and evil. And sometimes that's the case. We've obviously, we obviously know that. And I think for the most part, and I definitely think that for the people that got there, it was hidden from them even for a long time. And I think that's true of us. I think that's true of of. Me and you and people listening to this podcast that are in any position of power whatsoever, we are unaware of the ways in which we're not uh, we're we're not we're we're holding it in a way that harms or exercising in a way that harms. And so, what strikes me is that it really the how essential humility is to begin to turn these things around. And if we find ourselves sort of pointing fingers and thinking about those people out there, that we, we, we continue to do that. There's, we need to speak the truth. Uh, we need to name where it's where and hold accountable. And also, I think people who seem to hold power in ways that uplift and heal are people who I trust are likely on a daily basis really um, seeking out uh, wisdom, uh, seeking to see clearly their own flaws and their own opportunities to really grow. Uh, people who are actively being humbled, probably, and it's it's unpleasant. That is not that does not feel good. It does not stroke our egos. And also, I think that it's it's the only way. It's a daily sort of practice of walking in that humility, walking with that um, desire to see more ways that we need to grow and to, to find things that are maybe ugly about ourselves um, that are going to point us in the right directions and keep us away from that. Because I think um, most people that are, are behaving in ways that are harmful are, are not aware of how that's happening within themselves. And um, that's really the task, I think, before most of us. 
I mean, without really naming it, you, what you described there is repentance, the need for mm. repentance. And I, and I realize that can be um, a term that has some, some theological or cultural baggage. Um, and one of the things that we're doing in the network this month is um, taking a look, kind of surveying the various ways that the word repentance has been represented in, uh, in the Bible and also in, in church history. Um, but I, I just I think that might be worth uh, pondering as we conclude. What does repentance look like? And yes, it should also lead to reparation and to the work of repair. Uh, but what might repentance in our hearts? What might repentance in the structures, um, in the institutions that we inhabit? What might repentance look like? And uh, mm-hmm. for someone wanting a definition of repentance, I think just reflecting on the words that you just shared with us would be a really helpful exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if you meant to do that, but thank you for <laughs> uh, <laughs> thank you for um, describing and maybe even exhorting us to um, the discipline or the practice of repentance. Mm-hmm. I think that's really powerful. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, I'm just reading from the text of my own life, Peter. So, <laughs> Well, we all have this work to do, right? All of us um, yeah. to work at repentance and examining um, the ways in which we, um, the ways in which it would be good for us to change course or to, to mm-hmm. say sorry or to, um, mm-hmm. yeah, to turn away from harmful things that we've given our lives to, um, but out of which repentance is going to carve a path towards flourishing and healing so mm-hmm. yeah so thank you for for spending this uh, morning with us for this time uh, julie of sharing out of your your life experience um and it's just a real honor to be able to uh, walk this journey with you thank you peter it's it's really we are having and you are uh, creating some really nourishing spaces uh for for conversations that lead to repentance and healing and ultimately uh, create a sense of hope. So it's it's truly a gift, um, and I'm really grateful. Awesome. Okay. Well, I think you know we always have a hard time <laughs> with the conclusion. It always feels a little bit awkward. How do you end this thing? <laughs> but I think that was good. <laughs> I think that was because we're always like we're always in the deep end. Uh, <laughs> we're in the deep end, and then we're just like, okay, everybody, have a great week. <laughs> <laughs> No, but I love it. I love, I, I really think that you, you ended by um, talking about repentance. And um, mm. there's a need to reclaim, I think, the, the heart of the, the theological kind of truth and power of, of that. So mm. that, that's mm-hmm. really good.